It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The Oath of Amerta is the sacred code of silence that acts as the glue that binds members of the mafia together. In order to enter into the secret world of organized crime, many mobs require new recruits to prove their loyalty. After swearing to give up your own family and life as you know it, only then can you be adopted into the family. And for the Colombo crime family, this blood oath was the cornerstone of the organization. But what happens when this vow is broken? And who do you turn to when your very own father is the underboss? I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Sonny Francis was one of the most formidable mobsters in America. Over the course of 80 years, Sonny rose through the ranks of the Colombo crime family, eventually earning the title of underboss. It's a position that comes with a great deal of both respect and fear, earned through years of gaining trust in the underworld. Known for racketeering, trafficking, robbery, loan sharking, and even murder, the Colombo crime family was one of the main American mafia families. The Oath of Omerta was essential for the family's success as members devoted themselves to the mob's operations and swore to be silent about any of the crimes committed. Michael Francis understood the weight of this promise, taking it himself in order to protect his family. When Sonny Francis was sentenced to 50 years in prison, Michael entered into the regime to help make money for his family. Through the years, Michael gained wealth, power, and notoriety, soon becoming a capo regime for the Colombo family. But after he found himself behind bars, Michael would go on to leave New York and abandon the life he swore himself to. Michael is now an author and speaker who shares what his life in the mafia was like. Years later, the question remains, how was Michael allowed to leave the mafia? How did he survive exiting the underworld? And how has he been able to share details of that underworld life? Today, Michael Francis joins me to give an inside look into the secrets of the Colombo crime family. So let's start with those initial days and growing up uh, before you even knew really what your father did. Share what what that was like. Well, you know, my dad was such a high profile figure. Um, You know, he was kind of like the John Gotti of his day. So really, it started, you know, very early on in my life that I knew who my dad was. I knew it was something different because, you know, law enforcement tactics against organized crime were very different back then than they are today. Today, everything is very covert a lot of undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment. Today, somebody can be under investigation and not know about it until it's too late. 
But back in my day, when I was growing up, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. Every one of them would have a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was one of seven kids. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. So early on, from the time I was three or four years old and was able to realize that, you know, I knew something was different with my dad. And, you know, it was very turbulent because he was uh, arrested several times, you know, three times, at least in the state of New York, and went to trial three times. Um, then in the early 60s, um, you know, he was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. And uh, he went to trial in 66. He was convicted in 67, sentenced to 50 years in prison, which at that time, Emily, was the longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point. And, uh, and then he went off to do his time in 1970. So throughout that whole time, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, I kind of knew what my dad was. And, uh, you know, that was the lifestyle for me. And, you know, for me, I love my dad. I mean, I idolized him. And so I grew up always believing law enforcement and the government were the enemies. That's how I looked at it. That's exactly what I was going to ask. How did that sort of color your interpretation as that lifestyle was normalized and that style of living over three decades? You mentioned that it was really turbulent. And during the trial for your father, uh, in part, your brother testified against him. Can you describe a little bit about that for listeners? Yeah, well, that happened later on, Emily. Well, my dad, he was he was tried mm. originally in the early 60s, three times in the state of New York, uh, twice for grand larceny, once for homicide. And, uh, you know, there were serious, obviously, offenses. And my dad was in, in jail for, you know, several months while he was awaiting trial on all three of those cases. Um, but he was acquitted in all three of them. Then he gets indicted in uh, the feds for masterminding that uh, bank robbery. And uh, he got sentenced to 50 years. When he went off to prison in 1970, I was a pre-med student. I was going to be a doctor, Hofstra University in New York. And my whole life changed at that point because Joe Colombo became, he was the boss. He was, you know, I, I knew him very well. He kind of took me under his wing, started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. And Emily, I'll tell you this. My dad obviously did a lot of bad things in his life, you know, and so did I. I went to jail for a crime I was guilty of. But that particular crime that my dad did 40 years in prison, 40 years, he was innocent, innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. And I'll take that to my grave. I investigated that case. We spoke to every witness that testified against him. They recanted their testimony. We gave him lie detector test. We could never uh, prove his, his innocence, you know. So we did 40 years on the 50. And yeah, that left, left a very bitter taste in my mouth for law enforcement because I said, hey, you know, they framed my dad. Even though he was who he was, I loved him and they framed him for a crime he didn't commit. And it was destructive to our family. I mean, very destructive. So I grew up with that resentment and that kind of bitterness. And um, obviously, I feel differently now, but that's that kind of what shaped my life. And while he was inside, what was communication and visits like for him with you and with the family, and what restrictions did he have, if any, uh, with his work with the Colombo crime family? Well, when he went in, you know, again, the prison system was different than it is now. Back then, mm -hmm. he was only allowed one three-minute phone call a month and one visit a month, one day of visiting. And he spent most of his time early on in Leavenworth Penitentiary. So we had to fly to Kansas to see him, 
And what we used to do, we would see him, we would go the last day of the month, the first day of the next month. So we spent two days back to back with him. Uh, but, you know, one three minute phone call. Uh, after a while, my dad didn't become relevant in the family because, you know, we're dealing with everyday family life. And I was the oldest of, you know, uh, my brothers and sisters. And so I became more like the father figure in the house. I took care of them, tried to take care of my mom as best I could. Um, but, you know, I mean, we loved him and everything. But when somebody's not physically there and they're not in contact with you and you can't really communicate other than letters and, you know, uh, visits like they were, it's very, very hard. So um, very destructive of the family. You know, I say this all the time, Emily, the mob life is an evil lifestyle. And I'm not saying that I'm not calling the guys evil. I was one of them. I just happen to be very fortunate, very blessed. But the lifestyle is evil because I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't been totally devastated, including my own. And not my wife and kids now, but mother, father, brother, sisters, devastating. If I tell you that, you know, the whole history it was devastating. And I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't met the same fate. So any lifestyle that does that to a family, it's a bad life. And are those issues from coping? Is it drug and alcohol use and communication? Is it betrayal? Is it the wedge that law enforcement can drive through a family when you are uh, dealing with convictions and the like? You know, it's all of that. You know, my mom and dad, obviously, they grew apart. My mom passed away in 2012, but she spent 33 years without her husband. And, you know, at the end of her relationship, I can only describe her relationship with my dad as ugly because she blamed him for everything that went wrong in the family. Now, what went wrong? I had a sister, 27 years old, died of an overdose of drugs. My brother was 25 years a drug addict. And yes, he eventually did cooperate with law enforcement, testified against my dad, sent my dad back to prison. So a father turning on his son. You know, I had a younger sister, 41 years old. She died. She wasn't really mentally stable. She died young, too. So the whole family was destroyed. And it's it's a combination of everything. You know, this resentment towards law enforcement, the breakup of the family, you know, seeing what my mom went through, the kids turning to drugs. It was uh, it was just a mess. You know, it's it was, it's a bad situation. The first time that your father was inside, you mentioned that his colleagues and, and friends in the Colombo crime family came to you and said, now is the time for you to step up. What was their support like, however, for your family, for your six siblings and your mother while your father was inside for so long? Did you guys feel taken care of and supported by the Colombo family during that time? You know, honestly, no. You know, there's a, uh, a fallacy in thought there that when you know, a guy goes to prison that the family rallies around and takes care of the family. And that's just not true. You know, my dad had business on the street and that was taken care of from him. But when that business ran out, that was it. And that lasted maybe two years. And after that, we were on our own, you know, so I was kind of in a position where I had to, you know, help support the family. And so I dropped out of college and I went to see my dad. We were in a visiting room in Leavenworth Penitentiary. And I said, Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. 50 years. You know, he was 50 when he went in. He had 50 on top of that. I figured it was a death sentence. So, you know, and he, he looked me in the eye and he said to me, you know, son, I'm innocent. You know, I've been framed on this case. We have to prove my innocence. So I said, OK, fine. You know, just what do I have to do? Tell me what to do. I said, we need money. You know, we need to uh, track down these witnesses. 
And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So it was at that point that he proposed me for membership into the family, because really, you're on your own at that point, Emily. We, we had to take care of ourselves. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's a fallacy out there. A guy goes away, the family takes care of him. Not true. There could be some cases where that might happen, but generally, that's not the case. And you had been told your whole life by your father that he didn't want you part of that life. You were in medical school at that time. So what did that change feel like and what did that adjustment feel like for you? Did you feel convicted with a sense of purpose or did you feel that the about face was confusing? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, look, I didn't want my dad to die in prison. I didn't want the family disrupted. So I thought, you know, the higher calling for me was to help my dad. So, you know, you have these defining moments in your life. And obviously sitting with my dad and him proposing me into a criminal lifestyle. I mean, it was a life changing experience for me. And my life went in a totally different direction. But originally, he didn't want that for me. You know, he said, son, get an education, stay off the street. He wanted me to be the first professional in the family. That meant something to him. And so he was, you know, he was upset initially when I made that decision. But, you know, I think in the long run, he was happy about it because he knew I was there to help him and really did it for him. You know, I never aspired when I was a kid, even though I knew who my dad was, I didn't want to be a mob guy. You know, that wasn't my aspiration. A lot of guys in that life, this is the life that they aspired to be in all that time. They grew up in Brooklyn. They saw the guys around them. And that's what they wanted to be. It wasn't that for me. I, I got into that life really to help my dad. Did you see it or think of it as a short-term engagement? Or did you know at the time, did you appreciate that his membership proposal meant normally, we know that with you, it, it was a different story, but that it normally and typically meant a, a, an absolute lifetime commitment. Did you appreciate that at that time? No, I, I knew that once I was in, I was in for life. And... Um, you know, I had a very idealistic view of the life at that point, because to me, I was going to be part of something my dad was part of. You know, I looked at it as a, a you know, a life of respect and honor. You know, when I first got into the life, they told me, Michael, anywhere you go in this world, you're going to have backup. Somebody's going to have your back. This is a brotherhood. Don't ever worry about your wife, your sister, your daughter, your mother. Nobody's ever going to hurt them. You know, it's a brotherhood. And that's very powerful, you know, to men, you know, to have that feeling. So, I mean, I was exhilarated, you know, the night I got made. Uh, to me, it was like the best thing in the world up, up until that point in my life. I had a very idealistic view of it. And I think when you add on to that, that sense, that profound sense of brotherhood and, and that sense of belonging, when you, when you add that to the landscape of feeling totally betrayed by one's government and law enforcement um, and having your dad be put inside for this long sentence and, and you knew he was innocent. All of those factors sort of, I think, um, likely led to this galvanizing sense on for you and for all of your colleagues there and your friends and family in the Colombo crime family. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, look, we had kind of a code on the street. We understood that the government, law enforcement, their job was to come after us. We got it, you know. Mm -hmm. We even, you know, I had conversations with them. I said, listen, you do your job, you know, I, I understand that. Just don't frame us. Don't frame us. You want to get us, get us the right way. And when that happened, we understood it. There was no really hard feelings. That was it. 
But, you know, when they overstepped the, the line and me, I had that bitterness because I knew my dad was framed. I believed it with all my heart. I'll take it to my grave. I believe it now. But, um, you know, it's 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 tough to deal with, Emily. It really is. And, you know, I, I, I did that shape my life, the early part of my life? It, it really did. And that's why I looked at, you know, Cosa Nostra, as we call it here in this country, as something great. And, yeah, I was in it for life. When I got in, I was motivated to do two things. Number one, I wanted to get my dad out of prison, which I did. After 10 years, he made parole. My dad made parole five times and got uh, violated five times, each time for association. He just couldn't stay away. And so that's total the 40 years that he did. But, uh, but I was motivated to get him out. And secondly, I wanted to make money. My dad said, in this life, you make money. It translates to power, not unlike the real world. So I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street. I worked hard and I brought some new things into the family they hadn't done before and went on to make a very significant amount of money. That's how, you know, you come in as a soldier and then they made me a cop regime because I was doing well in that life. And what were some of those new things that you brought? Well, you know, I mean, look, I had a lot of legitimate businesses also. I had two car agencies. I had a film production company. I had a number of restaurants that I was involved in. I had a leasing company. So I was very aggressive in that way. But the biggest, I would have to call it scam that I got involved in was the wholesale gasoline business. And to make a very long story short, over a seven-year period, I had devised a scheme along with others that work with me. Uh, to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And um, over that seven-year period, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, and we were taking down 30 to 40 cents a gallon. We were bringing 8 to $10 million a week into our, our operations. So it was, it was probably the biggest money earner uh, that that life saw since the days of Prohibition. Can you share, with the 8 to $10 million a week, can you share percentages or portions of what of that would go to which members and how that all worked? Because I think in a lot of the movies and books, you know, we see everyone getting their cut and stopping in and getting this. And you as the capo regime with this business, how did that play out? How did the allocations play out? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, we had kind of a formula. If I brought something into that life and I brought a business in a deal uh, because it was my deal and I really didn't need any help, I would give the family, the boss, 25% of whatever I earned, 25%. Mm -hmm. That was the formula. So when I first realized what I had in this business, I went to my boss, Carmine Persico, who's passed away. Now. He was uh, in, you know, convicted on a commission case by Giuliani. He died in prison in 2019. He was my boss. But I went to him and I said, Junior, called him Junior. I said, I came across something. I'm going to show you more money than you've ever seen in your life. And he immediately looked at me and said, no drugs. We don't get involved in drugs. And I said, Junior, you know I hate drugs. We don't deal. We weren't allowed to deal with drugs back then. I said, it's gas. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's complicated. Don't worry about it. I said, but here's the deal. I said, everybody's going to want to get involved in this. You have to keep everybody else out. Because when too many people get involved on the street, everything gets ruined. I said, keep everybody out. I said, if we have an argument, I got to win 100%. I said, don't play politics with any of the other families. I said, you do that, and I'll make you extremely wealthy. And he looked at me. I'll never forget. And, you know, he was a tough guy. And he said, show me. I said, okay. Well, I started bringing him in $2 million a week. And $2 million a week, Emily, in that life buys a lot of loyalty. Trust me, right? 
So, um, and I never lost an argument. I sat down with John Gotti and everybody. I never lost an argument because they were protecting that money flow. And then after a little time, he made me a capo regime. I was a soldier when I brought this uh, into the family, but he made me a capo. And uh, it was, uh, you know, we had a seven-year run. You know, I mean, listen, I can't complain. I did extremely well. I had my own jet plane. I had a helicopter. I had a house in Florida, a house in New York, a house in California. I had 300 guys under me ready to do anything I, I told them to do. And I had the Russian crew from Benson, uh, from uh, Brighton Beach that were part of my crew. So, you know, we had, a, we had it going on. What struck me, too, about this, about that business of yours, so you talk about 25% goes to the head. How much of that was going to politicians and law enforcement? Because when you described setting that up, um, you know, you were you had at your behest politicians, including Mead Esposito, who got you 18 licenses for this gas wholesale when normally I think the average was was one license, you know, yeah. per year or something per someone, and you got 18. So when you talk about how you know, it, it sounds simple for us, the listener, but it was in part because you had on that same payroll people that that made it easy for you that otherwise would have made it challenging. So of the other 75 percent, how much of that was going to the people that were essentially looking the other way? Well, we did take care of politicians and Meet Esposito was, uh, you know, he was associate at the time. And, yeah, it was difficult to get the licenses. I actually had 18 Panamanian corporations and each one of them were licensed, and we were able to get the license. We had licenses in Florida. We had licenses in New York. Uh, we were starting to move out to Texas and California, and it was all through political context because you couldn't get them, especially somebody like me. But we had it set up. It was a, mm. it was a very sophisticated uh, setup and scheme in order to get all of this done. And so, you know, we took very good care of them. And, you know, look, I say this all the time. People say, Michael, Everybody that you were dealing with, they were all Democrats. And I said, well, at that time, Democrats were easy to corrupt. You know, what do you want me to say? That's who we were working with at the time. And uh, yeah, so we, we spread the wealth around. We, we really did. And, you know, a, a lot of people ask about law enforcement. Did we have them on our payroll? And I want to kind of set the table for that. You know, we had 750 made guys, guys that actually took the oath that comprised all five families in New York. So that was a lot. We had a lot of associates, but 750 that made guys. And a lot of us had a relative in law enforcement, a neighbor in law enforcement, a friend, somebody we went to school with. So we had a lot of contacts with law enforcement. And so, you know, they did our bidding. I mean, there was one police precinct in Brooklyn that, you know, two o'clock in the morning, anytime I wanted to, I can go up and look at all the files in their file cabinet to see if any of my guys were in trouble or anything that, you know, they might have had brewing. So we had those contacts back then. And uh, yeah, they helped us a lot. You know, um, I have to admit it. Well, and I think it illustrates the culture, especially back then. First of all, it's not some binary, you know, black and white lens that movies and Hollywood portrays things as to your point. Their families and humans are involved, which means that everyone knows somebody that is either inside or doing something bad or part of law enforcement, et cetera. It's not so it's not so cut and dried. Um, that's number one. And number two is that uh I as as you said um before that those guys were smart. You know, that a lot of times that these the made men or their soldiers or whatnot are portrayed as as 
simple-minded, but the whole point is that there were a lot of shrewd businessmen involved with, again, in these entrenched families and cultures, uh, which meant that relationships were developed and people were beholden because of money and because of loyalty and because of what could be public shame and total disaster. You know, once you got a politician on the payroll, that was it. You had them for life because they could never, ever risk being exposed. Yeah, no question. You know, understand that you said you made a very good point. You know, Mafia Cousin Austria in America, we had a lot of power and control under some very difficult conditions for a century, basically 100 years, you know, until Rico came in in the 80s and started to, you know, really uh, put a dent in the families. But we had a lot of control. I mean, we had control right into the White House. You know, we controlled all the unions. You control the unions, the Teamsters, and you control, you know, the docks. You control the country in a big way. Why? Politically, because number one, you have votes. You control, you know, millions of people. And number two, you have money. You know, votes and money are what politicians want. And if you can provide that for them and do it in a way where, hey, we're never going to give you up. You know, we're street guys. You're safe with us. And they and they take that to heart. So it wasn't difficult to get around these people and have them do the, the, your bidding. And, you know, we didn't ask them to do hard. We didn't ask them to kill anybody or anything like that. We just needed favors and they they were quick to oblige. But, um, you know, we, we had a lot of strength in this country for a lot of years. And a lot of guys were very smart. You know, you take Frank Costello. They called him the prime minister. Mm-hmm. Brilliant guy. You know, Joe Colombo who I was very close to, you know, is our family. Very, very smart guy. You know, even Persico, my boss, smart guy. Paul Castellano, very smart guy. You don't sell these guys short. If they were in a legitimate world, they would have done well also, you know, no question. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at com. So going back to your father proposing membership, you talk about the night that you got made. Walk us through what that all looked like, uh, Your the, the time that you had to prove yourself, eventually being made, what, what that X's and O's looked like. Okay. Well, you know, I came in, I was like 21 years old when I was a recruit. And when I first sat down with Tom DeBella, who was the acting boss at that time, he's passed away now. He said, Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life? Is that true? I said, yes. He said, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. He said, that means if your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service, you leave your mother you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. And then you're a recruit. And for the next two and a half years, I'm on call every day to do whatever I'm told to do. And that could be something very menial. You know, I always had a nice car, so drive the boss to a meeting, sit in the car for two, three, four hours. You know, Emily, God forbid you get out, you go get a newspaper, you go to the restroom, he comes out, you're not in, you're in trouble. You know, forget about it. I did that once. I paid the price. You know, he said, what if we would have got ambushed in there and we had to get away and you weren't in the car? And boy, I really got it, right? You know, you had a (laughs) meeting at 8 o'clock. You had to be there by 730. You can never be late in that life. You're late in that life, you're in trouble. Traffic, there's no excuses. You You get there the night before if you have to, but you're never late. You know, a lot of menial stuff like that. 
And look, you know, I always try to be as honest as I can. The life is very violent. And if you're, you know, at times, if you're involved in that life, you're going to be involved in the violence and there's no escape. And if anybody tells you differently, they're either lying to you or that they weren't a made member of that life. And I think you know what I mean. And um, so after two and a half years, you know, I proved myself worthy in their eyes. It was Halloween night, 1975. And I was called into a room uh, with five other gentlemen. We went into the room individually. The boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, underboss consigliere to his left and right, and all the capital regimes were alongside it. And we had about 15 in our family at that point. Walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand, took a knife, cut my finger. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it in my hands, lit it aflame. Didn't hurt it, burnt quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are being born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die like the saint is burning in your hell, in your hands. And that's it. Die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. And do you accept? Yes, I do. And uh, that's the oath. And as soon as you take that oath, you know, people misunderstand what the oath is. People think that the oath is an oath to lie, steal, murder, and kill. That's not it. I mean, you know, you do bad things as part of that life. But the oath of omerta is the oath of silence. You're not even supposed to admit that the life exists at all. And obviously, I've broken the oath. Uh, but it's an oath of silence. You know, we don't even admit. My, my dad would never even admit, admit that he was part of that life, you know, until later on in his life. But uh, that's what it's all about. But it's look, it's very, very serious. I take that oath very seriously today, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. What I know about the life is in my heart, my mind. I spent over 20 years there, grew up in it, not easily forgotten. But I don't consider myself a member of the life anymore. You know, there's, you know what they say. They say if you leave the life, you either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. In that <laughs> moment, when you were taking the oath and you were had your hands cupped, bleeding, the flame of the saint card, what were you feeling in that moment? Kind of exhilaration. You know, like I said, I had a very idealistic view of the life. And I said, wow, you know, it's finally here. I made it. I'm in. I was 24 years old. I was young. Um, I was very excited. You know, I have to admit it. I was now part of something my dad was, and I got this whole brotherhood behind me. I mean, I felt like, you know, a million dollars at that point. Soon to turn into eight to $10 million a week under your <laughs> leadership and business prowess. Uh, uh, yeah. So describe for us what your life and your duties were before you brought in the, the gas scheme right before you rose essentially to the prominence and became a capo regime, all of a sudden now you're a made member. What happens day two? Well, you're still on your own. Look, you know, there's, there's two categories of people in that life. You're either a gangster or you're a racketeer. Now, a gangster normally can't be a racketeer, but a racketeer has to be some gangster in him also. So what do I mean by that? We had 115 made guys in the Colombo family, guys that actually took the oath. Out of that 115, 20 of us were earning money. I mean, real earners. The other 95, who's got a no-show job with the union? Who's got a little numbers business? Who might be trying to, you know, be a bookmaker? You know, stuff like that. They weren't really earners. And so when there was a lot of grunt work to be done or some serious work, 
it would mostly fall on them because you got to earn your keep in that life. The guys that were making money, well, they don't want to, you know, kill the golden goose. So they want you to keep bringing in the money. So I was more of a racketeer than a gangster in that regard because I, you know, I just knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. And that's what you had to do. You had to know how to use that life and make it work for you to benefit you in business. And I was able to do that. A lot of, you know, like the other guys were. So every day, you know, kind of an entrepreneur, I'm trying to find different things to do. Like I said, I had two automobile dealerships. Now, your legitimate businesses, they didn't have any part of. That was yours. Unless they were, you know, my boss was my partner or I took money from him or whatever. If not, then I was on my own. These were my companies, my businesses. But anything that I had on the street, I had to pay up to the family. So if I had Shylock business, I was lending money out. I had to pay up to the family. If I had bookmakers working for me and I was earning off of that, I had to pay up to the family. And I had both. And of course, the gas scheme, I had to pay up to the family because it was an illegal scheme. From day one, I'm out there trying to figure out how to earn a living. That was it. And how to create business and, and make money for myself. And I got involved in, and like I said, I was very aggressive. Uh, I got involved in a lot of different things. And then how did you work on, and as you said, you were ultimately successful in getting your dad out? You know, we got him out on parole and we just created, he was a good inmate and we created a, uh, you know, a fact pattern that the parole board looked favorably on. You know, he, he, he just fit the criteria and then they let him out. And he had, even though he had 50 years, uh, you may know of this because you're, you're I, I believe you're a lawyer, right, Emily? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He had what was called back then a, a sentence, meaning he didn't have to do any minimum amount of time to make parole. So he, he got 50 years, but he could have been paroled after one day. And the reason they gave him that sentence was they were hoping that he would turn an informant and they can release him at any time. That never happened. So he was eligible for parole immediately. So we kept working on it, working on it, working on it. And then after 10 years, they finally gave him his first break and he got paroled. But like I said, he kept going back. But what do we do? You know, I worked with lawyers. We created a, you know, a narrative that worked for him. He had a family. You know, his, uh, my grandmother was passing away. She was ill. So we had a lot of different factors that were, uh, you know, in his favor to get him parole that first time. And you mentioned before um, that you also were charged and acquitted and went through trials. Can you share about those? Yeah, well, I... I I became a target immediately. You know, the minute I left school and got out on the street, I was a target because of my dad's high profile. So throughout the course of my career, I'll call it in that life, I had about 18 arrests. I had seven indictments. I had two federal racketeering uh, indictments and one state indictment. And then I had four other cases. I went to trial five times. I was acquitted three times. I was dismissed uh, the other two. And one of the cases was uh, Rudy Giuliani brought it on in 84. I was the first major mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. I was the lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. And uh, it's funny, Rudy will, will tell you this, you know, in the day of my arraignment, he gave me a million dollar bail. I was in the courtroom and he came up to me and my lawyer and he, he told my lawyer, he said, if I convict Francis on this case, he's getting double what his father got. He's going to get 100 years. And that's the kind of time they were giving us on racketeering cases back then, right? 
And, uh, and Rudy, I, I, I happened to sit down with him about a year ago on a radio show, and I reminded him of this, and he kind of laughed about it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, I, I would say we're friends now. I have a good relationship, but tried to put me away for the rest of my life. But And then ultimately, um, after I beat that case, I was acquitted after a several-month trial. My co-defendants, some of them got convicted. They got 30 years. So if I lost that case, you would have given me at least 50. I, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. And it was a, it was basically a white collar crime. It was it wasn't you know anything uh, you know a violence in it or anything. But um, I ultimately took a plea, you know, to this whole gas tax thing. It was another racketeering case, and that, that's where I ended up doing my time. Which was eight years. Well, I got a ten year prison sentence, and I did eight on the ten. I maxed out, and I had a fifteen million dollar restitution, and I had five million in forfeitures. But believe it or not, it was a good deal. It was a good deal for me because when I got 10 years, Emily, during that time, guys were congratulating me. You know, they said, oh, Mike, when you go to don't even take your shoes off, you're before, home before you know it. Because guys were getting 50 years, 100 years. It was crazy the kind of time they were giving out, you know. So really, I was blessed with 10 years. And inside, each day really feels like a lifetime, but then it goes by in the aggregate sort of fast, which is a weird, weird phenomenon in there. As you know, I, I am an attorney and I, I am laughing at myself because in my note taking, when I was researching you and listening to a lot of your prior interviews, and I had written down that you had been acquitted five times, I wrote down, get his attorney's name, because that's a pretty fantastic uh, record <laughs> that you have and that your attorneys have. So. Yeah, maybe after this, I'll, I'll find out who your attorneys are, because that sounds like an excellent team. Um, and to your yeah. point, 10 years sounds like a lot. But in that, during that time, when Rico had been passed, and now, you know, then uh, AG um, or Southern District Prosecutor uh, Rudy Giuliani was like taking it by storm. And his mission was to break up organized crime via using this RICO statute. So uh, it was a really, it was a, a dark time for organized crime. So eight years on 10 was relatively minor. Yeah, no, I, I was, you know, what you, happened what, was, you know what it was for me, and you'll understand this, I had leverage with the government. They thought they were going to convict me on the Giuliani case. They really did. And when I beat them for the fifth time, you know, I told my lawyer on this new case, I said, I have leverage. I beat them so much. I said, now may be the time to make a deal because they're never going to stop until I go down. And I'm not, you know, I'm not kidding myself. I know when I do go down, I'm going to go down for a big number. I said, so let's negotiate a plea. I'll give them some money. I'll do a couple of years in prison. And what happened, Emily, I had met this young girl that's now my wife of 38 years and my whole plan was to marry her, move out to the West Coast and kind of slowly drift away from that life. You know, I never expected to do what I did. Uh, but so when I was able to negotiate that deal, I said, this is really a good one for me and because they needed a conviction on me. They just wanted one. They, they didn't know what my strategy was, that I was planning to walk away from the life. I didn't tell anybody, um, but uh, that's why they gave me the deal. And oftentimes the government is sort of intent on um, a, a, an earth scorching destruction, regardless of, of the time that you've served. And sometimes, especially if you've served not that long in their eyes. So you mentioned the restitution and the seizure that you went through, but did the forfeiture, did you also, did, did the state come after you? Were you totally bankrupt after this? Did you go from everything to nothing or did those numbers 
did they really stop there and you were and you were able to continue on afterward well i took a big hit because i also got indicted on a, a racketeering case in florida and i took a deal in florida where i got a nine-year sentence which ran concurrent to the feds so i really didn't get any mm-hmm. time in florida but i had a three million dollar fine there also so you know i they hit me pretty hard but because i was able to negotiate i told them listen I want to keep some money for my wife. I don't want my wife have, to have to go to work and I have kids. So I want to be able to support them while I'm in prison. My house, I want to be able to keep that. So I was able to negotiate and keep some of my assets during my prison time. They took a lot from me. Don't get mm. me wrong. Because in the forfeiture, I had a plane, a helicopter. I gave it all up to them. I had some property. They took that. Um, I actually had produced a movie that they confiscated the, the, the movie and they were actually going to try to sell it. I negotiated that deal and worked it out also. But I, I was in pretty tough shape. I mean, because what happened, I did five years in prison, got out on parole. I was on parole for 13 months. And that was really a very difficult time because because I walked away from the life. Everybody was upset with me on the street. My father, you know, basically betrayed me in a way. Uh, contract on my life. I had a lot of stuff going on. The government was trying to really get me to cooperate. So those 13 months, Emily, honestly, were very difficult, very, very difficult. And I, I just couldn't get anything going on the street. I was like a fish out of water in L.A., you know, and I'm trying to rebuild my life. I'm still on parole. It, it was very difficult, like a fool. And I'll be the first to admit it. I fall into a trap. I violate my parole. So they send me back. Now, the second time I went in, it was really difficult because some of the money had run out. You know, I had two little babies now with my wife. I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot to deal with. And they kept me in lockdown. I was in solitary confinement for 29 months and seven days. And that's a six by eight cell, 24 seven. And so I I couldn't do anything, you know, and it, it was very difficult, you know, worrying about my family. I was they had enough to at least survive during that time. Uh, but that was, uh, that was a rough time. That was the roughest time of my life, no doubt. No doubt what about What was it. the justification for putting you in solitary? Well, quite honestly, they were upset with me. They were trying to get me to cooperate. And, you know, they had brought me in to testify in a case against the boss of Jersey, a fellow by the name of John Riggie, who I was friends with, very close with. And I basically refused to, to cooperate. And they sent me back uh, to L.A. And within 10 days, I was violated. And they, it was some nonsense thing that I got violated. And they gave me four years on the violation, which was the maximum. And then to, uh, to make it even more difficult, they kept me in solitary. And they told me it was for my own protection. I didn't do anything wrong. So they had me in administrative detention, they called it, because the word was on the street that they were going to kill me. So that's the excuse that they use, because normally they only keep you in there for 90 days, they have to justify it. But they kept me there for almost three years. And, um, you know, I, I will tell you this, Emily, I do a lot of work with these young people. I go into prisons. I speak to a lot of the gangbangers, a lot of juvenile halls. And I am dead set against solitary for young people because a lot of guys in that situation don't do well. When those lights go out at night, I heard a lot of moaning and grass. I saw a lot of bad things in there. And it's really cruel and unusual punishment for young people. They're not going to recover. There's got to be a different way to deal with them in prison, unless, of course, they're a danger to themselves and everybody out there. And that's rare. That doesn't happen often. So, um, but I was fortunate. I got through it. 
you know, my faith played a huge part in me getting through it, you know, the support of my family, but it's, it was difficult. Yeah. Social isolation, especially in youth, has the same detrimental effect on the brain that physical pain and physical trauma does. So it has a, a real physiological effect. And to your point, it can be devastating, especially for youth. So going back, you mentioned having gone through betrayals by your father. Can you share those? Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the horrors of that life, I would say, is that you make a mistake your best friend walks you into a room and you don't walk out again. And obviously in, you know, 20 years on the street, I, I saw unfortunately guys who went through that experience. And, you know, when you're doing well in that life, and I was one of the younger guys, you know, like in normal society, there's always resentment to the younger guys, you know, in whatever walk of life it is, that happens quite a bit. And that life, it's, it's even more pronounced. So I'm doing great. You know, I got helicopter, I got planes, I got, 300 guys around me and making a lot of money. And there's some resentment on the street. And I think, uh, I think it might've been Newsday. A story came out that I was getting powerful enough to break away from the Columbos and start my own family. And my dad was coming out. He was out on parole. He still had a lot of juice at that time. So people start to get a little nervous of that. I got the Russians on my, you know, my crew, I got a big crew. So I get called into a room one night and I don't want to go through the whole thing. It would take up a lot of time, but it was a, a bad situation. And I found out that my, I mean, I'm here, it worked out, but I really got put on the carpet and then everything was okay after that because I hadn't done anything wrong. But I found out my dad was in there earlier. They questioned him first and he kind of threw me under the bus. He said, hey, if my son is doing anything wrong, I'm on parole. He does everything. I don't do anything because I took care of everything. My father couldn't meet with anybody. He was always on parole. So he kind of threw me under the bus and I found out about it. And it was it was it was a, a real blow to me, honestly, because my dad and I were very tight. And um, it wasn't until two years. I never said anything to anybody in that life. You don't talk out of turn. You keep things to yourself. Because you, you never know if you, when you're talking to the wrong person. So keep things to myself. But it was two years later that I met my wife. And she was really the motivation for me to walk away from that life. But I always say this. If this betrayal didn't happen with my dad, I don't think I would have walked away from the life. Because I don't know if I could have hurt him in that regard. Because he was such a you know, stalwart of that life. And I didn't want to be a bad reflection on him because I loved him that much. But when I, when that happened, I said, man, if this life can separate father and son, what do we really have here? You know, over money and stuff like that. So, you know, that was another defining moment in my life because up to that point, it was me and dad, me and dad, me and dad. And, um, you know, but it, at the end, I mean, it, it probably saved my life because if I was still there, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. So, you got to look at things, you know, the right way. But that act of betrayal was tough. And, you know, another thing, when I was being transported, I was in custody on this case and because I didn't get bail on it. And they were bringing me, they break, all the feds and agents brought me down to Florida to take a plea down there. Because as you know, uh, the feds won't run concurrent with the state, but the state will run concurrent with the feds. So I had to take a plea in Florida first. So we're on the plane coming back. And I'm not kidding. You had to see this setup. There's probably 10 agents from different 
you know, agencies around. You had the Postal Service, you had the IRS, because they had a 14-agency task force that was assigned to bring me down. That's how serious it was. Mm-hmm. And so they were on the plane with me, and they say, Mike, now that you took the plea and everything is over, you know, tell us, were we right when we were investigating you about this and we were right? And they were asking me all these questions, and I was answering them, and I was kind of playing with them. I said, ah, I took a plea because I got tired of beating you guys. I wanted to give you one win, <laughs> right? We were kind of, you know, talking like that. I'll never forget, Emily. One guy looks at me and he said, not this time. You became a superstar and your friends were lining up to testify against you to save themselves. And it just struck me. I said, wow. Now, it was already over for me at that point. I had taken the plea, but I said, wow. And you know what? It turned out to be true. You know, that's what happened in the street. And... It just struck me, you know, and that betrayal from people that were close to me. And listen, I'm not crying the blues. I'm not blaming anybody. Comes with the territory. You're in that life. You got to understand this is how it goes. We're street guys. But it hit hard. It hit me hard. And I said, man, I said, I I think that uh, I really made the right move here. And if you see what's happening now, I mean, so many guys have become informants in that life. It's like I never thought I would witness that, but we have. The, the pressure and the weight of the government when it's hunting, when it's identified a target and it's hunting that target, uh, that weight is like no other. And it must be hard to balance that level of loyalty that you discussed in the beginning from the oath and knowing that you are with this brotherhood for which you were prepared to die and yet at the same time then learn that could be flimsy at times or eventually if people were ready to flip, if people were ready to make decisions that could throw others under the bus, if it meant saving their own hide. Yeah, it's, you know, Chaz Palminteri is a dear friend of mine. I was with him yesterday, actually, and he wrote The Bronx Tale. And, you know, in The Bronx Tale, Mm -hmm. there's a thing, uh, Sonny is asked, the mob guy is asked, is it better to be feared than loved? And Sonny says it's better to be feared, right? And when I got with Chaz, I said, Chaz, I disagree with that. He said, what do you mean? I said, let me explain. I said, on the street, there is a certain amount of fear. You don't want to make a mistake. There's a certain amount of fear. I said, you know, you don't want to lose your life, obviously. You don't want to get put on the shelf. There's a lot of things, a lot of consequences. So the fear helps you stay in line. What happened in my life is that the fear of the government, okay, with the RICO laws and putting you away for the rest of your life, that fear of the mob was transferred to the government. The government now said, hey, don't worry about your guys. I'll put you in the program. We'll give you some money. They're going away forever. We're going to protect your life. And if you don't go along, well, we're going to indict you and put you away forever. So guys on the street, that fear was transferred to the government. So that's why I said fear can be transferred. When you love somebody, you're not going to hurt them. You're not going to hurt them. Fear is, is, can be transferred to someone else. But when you have a genuine love, you're not going to hurt them. And that's what happened on the street. The life was exposed because it was a life built mostly on fear, not on love. And that's when it fell apart. Because when these RICO indictments came around and the government was saying, we're going to put you away forever, guys said, hey, I'm going for that. That's it. And the life really took a hit in a big way. That's why I, I, you know, I believe in love over fear anytime. 
And that's why as a leveraging tool, to your point, that's why RICO was so effective because the sentencing structure that was attached to it was so draconian. And and it continues to this day as well. You know, uh, uh, you email someone something nefarious, that's 25 years right there. So it enables the federal government in their negotiations with their target subjects or defendants uh, to have all the power. Because when you when you're shown one letter, one email, one behavioral thing that that equates to 25 years times 50, then mm-hmm. it's easy to understand why 99.9% of convictions at the federal level are because of pleas. And especially in these kind of cases where statutes like RICO are invoked. There's, there's no parole now. You, now you do 85% of your time. So, you know, and then not, a lot of times you don't get any bail. So you're trying to fight a case in prison, which is very difficult. You're a lot easier to fight on the street. You got no bail. The Sentencing Reform Act, you know, ridiculous sentences, and you got no parole. So you get 25 years, you're doing 22, 22 and a half. You get 50, your life's over. It's done. And there's minimums. Everything that what you said and minimums. Yeah. And then the irony is, though, now, I mean, I, I do feel that white collar crime and any crime that has to do with what the government perceives as their lost income is disproportionately treated in this criminal justice system because oh, a lot okay. of violent crimes, unfortunately, which I know we feel the same about. Um, so going so going back to sort of the beginning of the end. So you've you meet your wife. And this is two years after you've been betrayed by your father and have had an aha moment with law enforcement as you realize that your success within the family has sort of uh, made you into a target or vulnerable. So how did that separation, eventual successful separation from this life work for you when it's unheard of that it's been successful? Well, here's what happened. You know, when I met this young girl, she was 20 years old when I met her and I fell in love with her. And, you know, I told you what, the life is so destructive. And I said to myself, am I going to marry this girl? And, you know, two, three years from now, I'm either going to be in prison for the rest of my life or I'm going to be dead. I said, what's the sense? I have to make a choice. It's either her or it's going to be this life. And this is after that betrayal. So I had that in me already. Mm-hmm. And I said, OK, that's when I decided to negotiate for the plea, do some time, marry her, move out to the West Coast. And my plan was, well, when I get out of prison, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse not to meet with anybody. I'm out in California. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, the guys will forget about me. That was the whole plan. Didn't work out that way because it became very public that I was walking away from that life through a series of articles that were written and everything else. So, uh, but I had committed to doing it. Now, you know, the question is always, well, how are you still alive? And for me, there's two reasons for that. Number one is the spiritual reason. I am a person of faith. I'm a Christian, strong believer. And I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for my life. He's made it very, very obvious for me. Because there's no blueprint for walking away from that life, not entering a witness protection program, and living to tell about it. So I can't say I had this all planned perfectly. I didn't know how it was going to work out. I never sold my former associates short. They're very capable. They know their business very well. But here's how it worked out for me. I said, okay, I had an experience once. They're not going to walk me into a room this time. They're going to have to work to get me. So I move out to the West Coast. I became very disciplined in my daily movements, meaning 
You know, I didn't create any patterns in my life because I knew the life intimately well. Somebody's looking to hit you. Well, they look, what's your pattern? Do you walk your dog every morning at seven o'clock? Do you eat at the same restaurant every Tuesday night? Do you go to certain clubs? I cut it all out. I was a pretty disciplined guy to begin with. I said, nope, not doing any of that. So I was very, very structured in my life. And over a period of time, I just outlasted everybody because, number one, they realized I wasn't cooperating against anyone because the feds did me dirty. They put my name on the witness list, Emily, of trials that were coming up. And that I was coming in to testify. And I told my father, don't believe it. But even he didn't believe me because everybody says, oh, I'm not going to cooperate. And then they end up cooperating. So they would put my name on a witness list to put pressure on me. And so I'm telling my dad it's not going to happen, you know, through the system and everything. But nobody believed me. But then these trials start to come up and I don't show up. And then I get violated on my parole. So now guys are saying he's not going to hurt anybody. So the heat kind of went off. My boss, who really had it in for me, Persico took it very personal when I walked away. He's the guy to put the contract on me. And uh, he went away for 100 years. So, you know, he's in jail for 100 years. And everybody I knew, you know, to, to emphasize this, to show you how fortunate and blessed I am, 1986, Fortune magazine, I don't know if you read it, but uh, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. And it was a half the magazine, huge article. They featured six of us. I was one of the six. They actually had a chart with the 50 of us on there, according to rank, wealth, and power, right? I'm number 18 on the list. I'm the youngest guy on the list, five behind John Gotti. John hadn't been made boss yet. He was number 13. And, um, you know, I always say it was a ridiculous list. They didn't ask for our tax returns. I don't know how they make a list like that, but it sold a lot of magazines, but here's what's not ridiculous about it or not silly about it. Out of the list of 50 today, 48 of them are dead. Number 49 is still in prison. He's older than me. And number 50 is speaking to you right now. I'm the only one alive and free. So I just outlasted everybody. The government just came down on everyone. And, you know, when I wasn't a threat to anyone anymore and they had their own problems, it just worked out for me. But again, in that, you know, I was very disciplined. And look, you know, I tell people all the time, I can't go back to Brooklyn right now and say, hey, guys, I'm moving back into the neighborhood, even though they're all newer guys. They weren't from my era. Uh, I wouldn't last 48 hours. But, you know, I believe in God. God doesn't tell you to be stupid. You know, I can't do that because mm -hmm. I'd be snubbing my my nose in their face. And why would I want to do that? I don't do that. You know, they still they live their life and I live mine. But I think that's the answer. And again, you know, ultimately, God had a different purpose for me in my life. And he's made that crystal clear to me. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. And when you say that you ensured you didn't cause harm, um, you've mentioned that you did testify in front of the Senate, but you knew that it didn't have teeth. And what you testified about, you had given notice on. Can you share about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I testified about, you know, uh, organized crimes involvement in professional boxing. But I knew it had no teeth. Nobody was going to get it indicted. Information was out there already. And look, I know what these congressional look, you know, I've been around the system for my whole life, you know, so I, I understand what it is. And I knew I wasn't putting anybody in jail. The bottom line for me is, look, I made peace with the government, you know, but I said I will never put anybody in prison. It's not who I am. It's not what I want to do. I'm not going to go against my former associates. 
when I left the life, I wasn't angry at anybody. I didn't want to get even with anybody. I knew, you know, I just understood you're opening yourself up for different things when you're in that life. I just wanted out. So, um, and you know, John Gleason, I think you know who John is. He, he was a federal judge. He was my prosecutor at one mm. point. He put Gotti away. He was, uh, you know, a, a brilliant guy and very capable. He wrote a book and he said in the book that I took the government for a ride, which I did. I made them think that I was going along, but at the end I wouldn't. And I kind of played a game with them, got caught up in it. They put me back in prison for four years, fine, but I didn't hurt anybody. And that was what was important to me. So um, nobody ever went to prison because anything I ever said to anybody. And that was important to me. They said, well, we'll put you in a program. I said, I'm not going in a witness protection program. It destroyed my life, you know, and it'll, it'll, it'll make it sound like I left the life for the wrong reasons. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. So, and look, I'm not, I'm not throwing bouquets at myself, Emily. I'm just telling you that was my mindset and that's how I, I believed. And, you know, I think, uh, I think God saw something in my heart to say, Hey, he's worth saving because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. And, and, you know, look, I, I did things that I was wrong in doing. I was a criminal for a lot of years and, uh, I'm just very blessed that, you know, I've been able to, uh, to turn it around. Another thing that struck me and in, in part underscored by your description then and sort of your ability to be nimble and uh, refrain from hurting, from doing anything that had some type of lasting negative impact that would result in you getting either arrested and put away permanently or killed is your story of the, the your your partners who, after you were either inside or gone, refused to switch loyalties and one was extradited, one was killed. Can you describe that story? Oh, the Russian, my Russian partners. Yeah, they, uh, mm-hmm. when I left, you know, I, I told them, I sat down, it was three of them. They were great partners. We were together for almost seven years. We made a lot of money together. We were great partners, right? And I told them, I said, let me explain to you how this has to go now. You're going to answer to somebody else. And they said, no, we don't do that. Mr. Michael, they called me. We, we're with you. I said, but I'm going to jail. You have to answer to somebody else. That's how this goes. I'm passing this on. And they refused because there was a lot of trouble on the street because of that. And when I left, Emily, I told my guys, I said, listen, these Russian guys, they're, they're strong guys. They're not, they're not guys that you want to abuse. Treat them right and you'll do well with them like I did. You know, I treated them properly and we made a lot of money together. We were friends. I used to go to Brighton Beach every, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday night. And if you saw the spread, I mean, a table, you know, 10 feet long with lobster tails and vodka. And we had party together. We had a great time, right? They were great guys. And I told them, treat them that way and you'll do okay. Well, they didn't treat them that way. And they thought that they could be, you know, just really, you know, put the screws into them. And they wouldn't accept it. And one of them got killed. I mean, they killed him. Uh, Markowitz. Uh, the other one, they, they went after him. They put him in a wheelchair. They shot him up a few times, but he lived. And the third one, David Bogatin, he ran away. You know, he was a fugitive for quite some time. So, and they destroyed the whole business that we had, you know, because they didn't operate it properly. But I mean, I was gone. It didn't matter to me. I knew I wasn't going to get anything out of it. But yeah, they remained loyal. You know, sometimes you treat people the right way and it, it comes back to, uh, you know, to benefit you. Once you move to California, is there any, you know, what, what, are, what are the different coasts like in terms of the presence of 
La Cosa Nostra, the presence of of the families, anything like that? Is there any parallel? Is there any big contrast? Yeah, I mean, you know, when the guys out here, we used to call them the Mickey Mouse mob. I mean, they weren't in California. There wasn't really a presence. You know, I'll give you an example. When you go to another city where there is a strong mob presence like Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, Tampa, Florida, Kansas City, when you go there, if I was to go there as a made guy and wanted to do any business, I would have to check in with the guy there and let him know I'm there and, and get almost like permission to do something there. Respect, right? When I went out to California, they said, do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. You know, no problem. You know, just mm. you don't have to answer to anybody out there. So and even now, there's no presence out here of any significance at all. And a few guys that were out here, I knew them at that time. So it, was, it wasn't a problem. I would have never made it in New York. I could have never stayed there. No way. That's why my father, you know, he, he just kept getting violated. He couldn't get away, you know. And if I would have stayed there, I could have never did what I did and stayed there. And if I would have stayed in the life, I, I would be dead or in prison, no doubt. In addition to Rico, which we've talked about as sort of the beginning of the end at that time of that era, at that time you've mentioned how drugs was an absolute no. But in this day and age, it's certainly used as a currency um, and the, that and in sometimes human smuggling. Um, it's the, the, you know, obviously largest illicit global industry. Um, and the question is whether that led to the complete change of the trajectory of the families as well, would you say, Rico and drugs? Uh, absolutely. You know, we were told straight out, and I get hit up on social media all the time when I say, we weren't allowed to deal with drugs during my era. And I always say, I'm not saying some guys weren't doing it. Look, we're street guys. Some guys were doing it on the sly, you know, but we weren't involved with cartels. We weren't major drug dealers. And I know guys that got killed for dealing with drugs. I had a good friend of mine, uh, Emily, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, he was a friend of my dad's and I knew him my whole life and he became part of my crew. And uh, I'm, I get off a plane in Florida. He had, he had gotten involved in a drug deal and he came to me and he was a stand-up guy. And he said, Mike, I'm in trouble. I got involved in this deal with an undercover agent and some other people were involved. I'm going to be in trouble. They're going to kill me. And I said to him, his name was Tony. It's public. I said, Tony, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to kill you. You're going to be okay. You've been a soldier here for 30 years. You're a stand-up guy. We'll straighten it out. Well, I go to Florida. I get off the plane. I get a phone call. He was so afraid of being walked into the room because he was dealing in drugs. He goes into a phone booth and kills himself. That's the kind of fear he had of being walked in that room because of the fact he was, you know, when I was a kid, I called him Uncle Tony. I was that close with him. So my point is we weren't allowed to deal with drugs at that time. And, you know, look, Gotti's problem. Why? Castellano found out that his crew was dealing with drugs. And so he had an issue over that. Um, now, you know, I hate anything to do with drugs at all. I would never be involved in it. It was so destructive in my family, and I, I just hate it. But um, yes, a guy's doing it now from what I'm hearing. Yes. So between mm -hmm. actively dealing in drugs and the RICO Act and the Sentencing Reform Act and all those things, the government just had too many weapons, too many tools. You know, one thing, Emily, I have to say, if you give me this opportunity, 
when you're on the street, you know, normal, normal uh, law enforcement, what happens? A crime is committed. They go out, investigate the crime and try to find the perpetrators, right? When you're an organized crime, they don't do that. They're investigating the person and trying to find out what crime they're committing. So how do they do that? They plant, you know, surveillance techniques and, you know, all that stuff, undercover informants. They know you're doing a crime. They just don't know what it is, and they have to find it and prove it. What's upsetting me now, you know, is that's what I see that they're doing in government. They're not going after crimes. They're going after people, you know, and it's such a dangerous thing that's happening. You can almost justify it on organized crime. Okay, we're criminals. We have to find out how to put you guys away, so we're doing our investigation. But when they start doing that, you know, to Trump and to people like that, it's it's a terrible uh, it's a terrible policy that we're following, and it's really bothersome to me. It's very troublesome to me. I'm I'm extremely you know I just wrote a book which called it's called Mafia Democracy, and I'll tell you what happened. I wrote a business book a few years back, and uh, it was pretty successful. My publisher came to me and said, "We want you to write a political book," and he said, "Could you could you do that, Harper Collins?" And I said, "Yeah, no problem." He said, well, what would it be? I said, well, the government's acting more like the mob than we did. And he said, we love it. What do you title the book? And right off the top of my head, it said, Mafia Democracy. Great. So they give me an advance. I go back. I start writing the book. I'm in about four chapters, and I turn to my wife, and I say, why am I doing this? Nobody's bothering me now. I got friends in law enforcement. I said, I don't need the headache. I went back to my publisher, gave him the advance back, and said, I'm not writing a book. Cut to a year and a half ago, I felt an obligation to write this book. So I wrote it. Mm -hmm. And because I see this government acting so mob-like, it's all about power and control. And so I do my research, and the book is, there's no fluff. It's not a fluff piece. I did it because I want people to realize what's going on and hold our government officials accountable. Because our, our freedoms are being eroded. I can see it as well or better than anybody, because I've lived that kind of life. And so, you know, why am I saying all this? You know, I've been so blessed and so fortunate to have a transformation in my life. And I attribute it all to my God and my wife and my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law prayed for me constantly, right? She, every day, pray, 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 pray. Um, and, you know, to those who have been given much, much is expected in return. And when you see something going wrong, I have seven children total. I have six grandchildren and one on the way. And I'm worried about oh. what this country is going to look like, you know, in two, three, four years from now. So we have to we have to do something about it. Your book, Mafia Democracy, How Our Republic Became a Mob Racket. And the foreword, interestingly, was written by Rudy Giuliani himself. Yes. So I cannot wait to read your book. And I know that after this, um, a lot more people are going to feel exactly the same way. You know, they say that uh, a man's wealth is in his family. And for someone like you who made eight to $10 million a week, and now you have seven children and six grandchildren and one on the way, I, I'm i sure you have never been as wealthy as you are now and are about to be with the arrival of your seventh grandchildren. So that I'm sure is the truest blessing that you've experienced. Oh, without a doubt, Emily, it's, uh, you know, I, I really mean this. You know, it's not that I have every day is a great, wonderful day, but I'm thankful every day. I really am, you know, and um, because we we have to realize the blessings that we have in life. You know, my kids used to uh, they used to complain. They said, Daddy, this is not fair. I said, really? 
I said, you know, it's not fair. And they say, what? I said, some kid that was born in Nigeria that doesn't have any shoes, that has to walk a mile to get some food. I said, and all that poor child did to deserve that was be born. Did nothing else. So don't tell me about what's fair here in life. Okay, you have a roof over your head. You, you drive a nice car. You've got every, all the luxuries. So don't tell me about fairness. Life is not fair all the time. Don't use that word in the house. I told him that. I said, just deal with it and get on with your life. And, you know, you, you got to realize that we, we have it pretty good, regardless of what's going on. We really do. And we want to preserve that. You know, I mean, this is the greatest country that ever existed on the planet. We want to preserve that. Mike, can I ask you, in closing, can you share with us the message that you share with youth and adults in prison when you're yeah. meeting with those who are incarcerated and the youth that can still make decisions and still have some choice over their lives? What, the, what is the message that you send to them? Well, let, let me tell you, you know, I spent a lot of time in prison with a lot of young kids coming into the system, 21, 22, 23 years old, mandatory minimum drug sentences. You know, you get 20, you're doing 17 and a half. And even before I was a Christian, I would because I have a heart for kids, seven kids of my own. I, I like kids. I love kids. And so I would listen to them. You could write the same script for every one of them. Broken home, no father figure in the house, mom trying to do her best. Normally, she's young, trying to get her own life together. What do they do? They gravitate to the local gang, the local drug dealer. Before you know it, they're doing their bidding. They end up in prison or God forbid something worse. So I used to counsel them while I was in prison. So now I get out and I said, listen, I want to help these kids because fortunately, you know, they look at the mafia as the biggest gang in the world. So immediately I walk in, I have credibility with them. It's easier for me to talk to them than some counselor or anything else because I get their attention right away. Right. And I tell them straight out, you are not going to get away with criminal conduct in America anymore. This is going to be your surroundings. So the main message I give them is two things. Number one. Don't tell me you can't walk away from that life. I walked away from the biggest gang in the world. If there's a will to do it, there's a way. I always tell the, whoever it is that brings me in, I said, listen, I promise you I'm going to leave these kids on a high. I'm going to give them hope. But after that, there isn't much I can do for them. So you have to make sure that I have a program to send them to because you can't send them back in their neighborhood and they're walking away from their gang. It's dangerous for them. I know that better than anybody. We have to have a place for them to go. So I make sure we establish that first. And then I tell them, remember these two things. In this life, we are who we hang out with. You hang with the wrong crowd. You're going to be known to be the wrong type of person. And they're going to influence you. And they're going to bring you down. So you have to be careful who you hang with. You hang out with people that care about you, that want to elevate you into another position in life. That's critically important. Secondly, the path that you are taking in your life, the, the path that you're directed to, is going to be influenced by who you're accountable to. When I was on the street, I'm accountable to my boss, accountable to my oath. I was a criminal. When I got out of the life, I became accountable to God first, my wife, my children, people that, you know, have faith in me that I don't want to let down. So my life took a different course because I tell them, listen, when I walked away from that life and I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. I don't forget, you know, the 20 years I put on the street. You know, they say you could take the boy out of Brooklyn, can't always take Brooklyn out of a boy. I'll be honest with you. Whenever I go to a gas station and I see the taxes and the gas prices now, it, it drives me crazy. I'm computing how much money I could have earned at the gas station right now. 
you know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's amazing, but, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to, I'm accountable to the right people now. And I said, look, I need to be nourished every day too. I make sure I'm in church on Sunday. I read my Bible. I do the things I'm around the right people that keep me straight. So those are the two messages that I give them. And it really resonates. We've been able to help a lot of young kids. We really are because these are kids. You know, look, Emily, my son, Michael Jr., from the time he was 16 until he was about 24, the kid drove me out of my mind. <laughs> he got into drugs a little bit. He, 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 was, I, he got expelled from school. I mean, you name it. I used to tell my wife, he and I were like oil and water, right? I communicate for a living. I couldn't communicate with my son. He just turned me off. And my wife used to tell me, he's a late bloomer. Pray for him. Don't worry about it. And I used to say, but how late? How late, right? Well, as a, and he had the best environment, you know, grew up in the church. My wife had the best environment. Well, now, you know, he's 33, doing terrific, turned his life. He's, he's great. You know, he's, everything is great. And all my kids have been very blessed in that regard. But, and he had the best of everything. Put these kids where they, they grow up with no guidance. What do we expect? What do we expect from them? So, you know, and I tell adults sometimes, they say, oh, Michael, it's, you know, it's a great thing that you're doing. I say, well, why aren't you doing it? We created the environment they're living in now, and it's up to us to turn it around. I believe the, the main, and I might get hit for this, but the main problems, the root problems of what we have in America, breakup of the family. That's it. They don't have this guidance. They don't have that family cohesiveness, you know? Um, and hopefully we can bring it back. I don't know. Thank you so much for your time with me today, for your honesty. Um, mm and for your authenticity that you have never once uh, let go of during your entire time through the life and after. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.